you have your Bible this morning, open them up to the book of Acts chapter number 2, Acts chapter number 2. Today we're wrapping up our two-part series on vision. Last week we talked about increasing our vision and daring to think big, to dream big, to hope big, to believe big. And three key words that we looked at last week were focus, direction, and expansion. And so today we're going to be talking about how do we put that vision into practice? How do we put it to work for us? How do we implement it? You see, a goal, a dream, or a vision that exists only on paper or only in our minds is really nothing more than just a whim. If we have this thought, if we have this idea, if we have this vision, but we don't put it into practice, it's really nothing more than just an idea, nothing more than a whim. It becomes a life vision. It becomes something that can help change our life when we decide to invest the time, the energy, and the effort, and the money necessary to make that vision a reality. For example, there are some people who dream of being happily married with a fulfilling family life. The problem is they're not willing to put in the time and the energy and the effort to invest in that life. They're not willing to pay the price for a happy home life because it will cost. That's because happy families don't just happen. It takes work. Families take work. Having a happy family, having an enjoyable family life takes work. It's not just overnight. It's not something that just happens. It takes commitment, determination, perseverance, sacrifice, and obedience to biblical principles to truly enjoy the life God wants us to live. It involves a series of steps that you and I have to take if we want a happy home life, and that's for anything we want. That's for anything we desire, anything that has a vision or a goal. We have to take those steps in order to reach that. And so a vision without that action really isn't vision at all. It's just that idea. It's just that whim in our mind. In order for that to be realized, we have to be willing to take the the necessary steps that the vision God has given you in your life, but also the vision God has given us as a church. So what does that look like in a church? We're, we're going to be kind of going back and forth between our own lives and the church because really God has placed a vision in your life. God has placed you in this church. And so that vision plus the church's vision should kind of come together so we can accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. So what would that look like? Well, I want us to notice what it looked like in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, Verses 42 through 47, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with the awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As I read that this week, I thought of two things. Two things came to my mind as I was reading that and looking at the description of this early church. And the two things that came to my mind is, what does God want and what does Satan want? And so, what does God want? God wants us to be united. God wants us united. He wants us in agreement. He wants us to be together. And so, if that's what God wants, then what does Satan want? Satan wants us to be divided. God wants us to be united 
to be, come together, to come together in unity. Satan wants us to be divided, to be at a disagreement, to be at odds with one another. So what is division? If we're going to be divided, what is division? It is a disagreement between two or more parties or groups, and typically it results in tension or hostility. And when there is division in a church, I think of anything that, that can happen in a church, when there's division, when there's disunity, I think more than anything else, that breaks the heart of God. Because God wants us to be united. I, I came across a unique take on this verse. If this verse were written for the average church today, not, not the churches that are really following God, not the churches that are doing what God wants, but just, just a group of people that are coming together that aren't united. I, I found this, this written about this. It said, all the believers were divided. They didn't have much of anything in common. They were hoarding their possessions and goods, and they kept as much as they could for themselves. Every now and then, if it wasn't football season and they weren't too tired, they would come to church for an hour and leave early to beat the traffic. They loved Jesus when it was convenient for them, yet they were despised by people for their hypocrisy. And very few people were saved. And what struck me as I read that is that last line, very few people got saved. Why is that? Why is it that people don't get saved as much anymore in churches? Why is it that we're not seeing a movement of God in our churches today, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I think there's multitude of reasons why that's happening. But I think the number one reason, one of the major reasons, is because we're not letting the Holy Spirit lead and guide in our churches anymore. We're, we're not dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit can do. Listen, the church is a movement of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the church was birthed out of Jesus, and it was given power, and it was given the, the ability to do what it was called to do because of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And you see the results when the Spirit was alive, when the Spirit was being welcomed into the place that people were being saved, people were being added to the church. But we've come to a place in our churches today where we don't necessarily welcome the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I heard this put so well last Sunday night at our RBA meeting. The pastor that spoke was talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about it. And, and the reason why is because there, there's been some groups that have really gone the opposite direction of what the Holy Spirit in Scripture was all about. And they've added a lot of extra things. And so as Baptists, we pulled back and said, well, we don't want to be associated with those groups because we believe a little different. And so instead of teaching what we believe or practicing what we believe, we just stop talking about the Holy Spirit altogether. It's like the Godhead has now become God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit is only there when you get saved, and that's it. And, we, and we've forgotten that the Holy Spirit is a major part of the Godhead. There's three gods. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct personalities, but yet with the same goal, with the same vision, with the same Spirit, Godhead. And we've, we've taken the Trinity and made it just two. And we've forgotten the Holy Spirit. And so as time goes on, we're not letting the Holy Spirit guide us. We're not letting the Holy Spirit lead us. Because your vision for your life, the vision for our church, will never be accomplished if we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. It just won't happen because we're doing it in our own power. And that's what so many churches have become. They've allowed the Holy Spirit to leave. They've allowed the Holy Spirit to go. And the Holy Spirit is no longer power empowering us, no longer guiding us, no longer directing us. And so what happens is 
rather than being a church that's on fire, rather than being a church that's seeing God do amazing things, we're an impotent group of religious people come together on a Sunday morning and gather and leave. And, and that's what it's become. And I'm not, I'm not griping at us. I'm, not say, I'm saying this is reality. This, isn't, this is churches all across America. We've, we've relegated it to that. And, we, if, and we're no longer even worried that we don't see the Holy Spirit move. That doesn't bother us anymore. In fact, we come to church and we don't expect the Holy Spirit to move. And if He does, we're shocked. Listen, we should come always expecting God to do something. I mean, we should. When we come to church, we should expect God to be doing something in my own life, your own life, in, in people's lives around us. We should expect God to be moving. And we'll never be able to put the vision of our life into practice. We'll never be able to put the vision of the church into practice if we don't have the Holy Spirit. I heard it put Sunday night. He was talking about the book of Ephesians. He said in chapter 1, it said, when you get saved, when you, when you are saved, the moment you believe, the Bible says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He has sealed you. You are a believer. He's in your life. But he said it wasn't till chapter 5 where Paul said, be filled with the Spirit. He, he's talked about some other things. He said, you're sealed. Every Christian is sealed. Every one of us in this morning that is a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. You are sealed. But he said, the problem is, so many of us, we're sealed, but we don't get filled. We don't let the Spirit take over. We don't let the Spirit control us. We don't let the Spirit guide us. We don't let the Spirit empower us. And I think, you know, we wonder, I, I, I read the, the story of, of um, Samson, and I think it's a tragic tale because the Bible says that, you know, he, Delilah was, trying, was upset because he wouldn't tell her the source of his strength. And he kept giving her this, and they would try it, and he'd break the bands. And finally, she, she just nagged and nagged and nagged enough that he finally said, okay, here's the source of my strength. My hair's never been cut. And so she lulled him to sleep, cut his hair, tied him up, and called the Philistines in again. And it said, he got up like before because he did not know the Spirit had left him. Can I tell you, I think there's a lot of Christians today that haven't realized the Spirit left them. And we're still trying to do things what we've always done, but the Spirit's not there anymore. And we cannot put our vision into practice if we do not have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what is the church's vision? How do we put it into practice? I think every church is different, I mean, as far as specifically how they're going to do it. But I think the overall vision of the church, this, this is the, the vision of every church, every local church, uh, based on Scripture, I think we're to spread the gospel to a lost and dying world. That, that's vision number one. We, we have to do that. We have to spread the gospel to the lost and dying world. Once we get people saved, then you know what our responsibility is? To lead them to become fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. To disciple them. Every church's vision is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then disciple them to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is the vision of the church. Now, how we go about doing that, each church does that a little different. What we may do as far as reaching out or doing different things, but that is the vision of the church. The vision of the church, that is the vision of our life spiritually, is to reach people and help them grow spiritually. So how do we do that? How do we make that as a church? How do we make that vision be put into practice? Well, I think the early church gave us some direction for that. I want us to notice four things this morning found in, chap in chapter 2, verse number 42. First of all, the early church was devoted to following the Scripture. 
They were devoted to the scriptures. Look at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is the apostles' teaching? Well, that was to reveal the God-inspired truth. They were committed to knowing, to applying, and to living out the truths of the Word of God. Now, they didn't have the entire Bible. In fact, when, when they're talking about the Word, they're talking about the Old Testament. That's the majority of what they had. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. The Gospels hadn't been written yet. So when he's saying they were following the teachings, they were following what was in the Old Testament and then what they were teaching about Jesus Christ, what they were teaching about the truths that Jesus Christ came to give. What this means is they were more than just hearers. They were doers. They were doing it. They weren't just listening. Uh, they were like newborn babies. They were hungry for the word. They were hungry for the truth. They were hungry to know God. They were hungry to know his will for their lives. What did God want them to accomplish? What did God want them to do? Can, can I tell you the scripture, th this right here, is God's primary voice to us today. This is what God uses to speak to us today. Now, he, he can use multiple ways to do that. Uh, through Sunday school, through me up here because I'm preaching the Word of God, I'm parting that, to you in a Bible study, to you, but he primarily uses his Word, scriptures, as a source to tell us how to live our life. The Bible says it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And, and so here's the truth. Remember what David said in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not, what, sin against you. I've hidden it. I've taken your word and I've hidden it in my heart. Listen, if I don't hide the word in my heart, then I'm not going to follow God. If I'm not hiding this word in my heart, I will not follow God. And you know what has plagued the church? Do you know what has plagued the church today more than anything? Is biblical illiteracy. We just don't know the word of God. We don't. And... As Christians, this is where we get our source. This is where we get our direction. And if we don't know this, then we're lost. We don't have that direction. We don't have that vision. Because we don't know it, we don't live it. And worse, we don't know how to live it. We, we don't know how to live if we don't know the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Another translation puts it, Study to show yourself approved. Study means it takes work to know the word of God. It just doesn't come by, by uh, osmosis and naturally we don't absorb it just by being around it, we have to actually study it and read it and put the work into it. We have to do our best to present ourselves to God as one who's been approved, one who is worker, who doesn't need to be ashamed. We're not ashamed because we don't know the things of God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to know everything that, that you would get if you were in a, um, a, a seminary class. I mean, People sometimes say, well, I don't know the Bible as much as you do. Well, I've studied it for my life. I've gone to school for it. I'm still in school for it. I'm still pursuing degrees. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I might know a little more than you. But that, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't give you the right to say, well, I'm not a preacher. I don't need to know that stuff. It's good to know that stuff. I'd want to know that stuff even if I wasn't here because sometimes you get in conversations and people want to ask something and we need to know the simple stuff. 
And so we need to follow the scriptures. We need to have the scriptures in our life. We'll never be able to, uh, to put our vision to work if we don't know the word of God. We have to know it. James 1, 19 through 22 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Boy, those are, those are some, some, some wise words that we all, at some point in our lives, need to adhere to. Slow to speak. Uh, or quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He says, why, why do we need that? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly. Look at this. Accept the word that has been planted in you. It can save you. And then he says this. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves, but do what it says. It's not just enough to know the word of God, because once we know it, Guess what? We're supposed to do it. And I think maybe sometimes that's we don't want to know it because I can plead ignorance. If I don't know it, I don't know I had to do that. But once I've read it and once I know this is what God wants, then I know I'm in trouble because the Bible says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, guess what? That is sin. You know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it. It is sin not to do that. And so we're just saying, well, if I don't know it, then it can't be sin. Listen, you will never meet, you will never be able to put your vision that God has given you in your life. We will never be able to put the vision of the church into practice if we don't follow the scriptures, if we don't know what the scripture says. Secondly, the early church was devoted not only to the scriptures, but sharing encouragement. They were devoted to encouraging one another, to being together, to enjoying one another's company. Verse 42, the second part said they devoted themselves to fellowship. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And it means to have an invested partnership, to, to have this close togetherness. Uh, this, this kind of fellowship did not occur um, before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In fact, this is the first use of the word koinonia in the New Testament, that, that word togetherness. Um, every time it's used, it denotes some kind of sharing, some kind of being apart, uh, sharing life together, allowing other believers to pour into your life in encouragement um, and to hold you accountable to pursuing and to serving God. Basically, what this refers to is being spiritually engaged with one another. Engage with one another to encourage one another, to spur one, and all, one another along in our service for Christ, in our living for Christ. And I, I think in a lot of places today that has been lost because we live independent lives rather than interdependent lives. We, we live lives that are independent of one another rather than living lives where we are dependent on one another to get, help us Stay accountable, help us for encouragement, help us in sharing different things. But if we're going to thrive in our faith, the Bible says we need one another. There are so many one another's in Scripture. Love one another, encourage one another, share with one another. I mean, just over and over, it's one another, it's one another. God meant for us to be together in community, to be together, to share with each other, to encourage one Another, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way open for us through the curtain, 
that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we're going to fulfill our vision, if we're going to put our vision into practice, we've got to learn to encourage one another. We've got to be there for one another. We, we have to be able to count on each other to help lift us up, to help encourage us, to help hold us accountable. When we say, hey, we're going to do this for God, then you need someone in your life that says, hey, are you doing that? Hey, are you following through on that commitment? And it's not being nosy, but if, if we're not held accountable, you know what happens? We fall away. Because Satan doesn't want us to be accountable. And Scripture is saying, look, you need to have that someone. You need to be a part of that. And part of the church is that holding each other accountable, helping encourage one another. And he says, look, we have to spur one another on. We have to encourage one another on to love one another and to, to do good deeds. And we do that all the more as we see the day approaching. What is that? It's the day that Christ returns. As we know it's getting closer, he's saying, you're going to have to encourage one another more and more and more. And so we share encouragement number three. The early church was devoted to regular examination. They were introspective. They were looking at their lives. They were examining their lives. Verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that is a reference to communion. And what do we do when we celebrate communion, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We are examining ourselves. We're looking at our life. We are remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a time of reflection. It's a time of self-examination to make sure that we are on a right relationship with God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28 says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. We are to examine ourselves we're to constantly looking at our life and examining ourselves. And if we're going to put the vision of our life into practice and the vision of our church into practice, we always have to be examining, making sure we're right with God, making sure we're doing what God wants us to do. It was amazing. The pastor that spoke last week was talking about prayer and, and how that he realized God was no longer in their church. I mean, they were just going through the motions. They had they had feeding centers. They had everything. They were down in Houston. He said, we were doing ministry all over the place, but God was no longer here. We, we, we weren't seeing God do anything. We were doing stuff, but God wasn't. And he said, I got to a point that I just finally said, you know what, God, if you're, no, if you're not part of this church, I don't want to be a part of this church. And so he, talked, he went to his people, and he shared that, and he said, you know, you can fire me if you want to. Of course, the ironic thing is, he said, you know, he planted that church. He started that church 18 years ago. Well, now 20 years ago, because this was all happening in 2020, and he planted it in 2002. He said, so I couldn't even blame the problems we were having on anybody else. I created those problems. 
I got us to this place. So he said, this, this, I couldn't say, well, the former pastor did these things, and this is why we're in this position. He said, we're in this position because I'm here. And so he basically just said, you know, we, we've got to pray. We've got to seek God. We've got to do what God wants us to do. And they examined their life, and they realized God was not there. Listen, we have to examine our life and realize, is God helping me do what I'm doing? And if he's not, why am I not seeking his help? Why am I trying to do this on my own? So they have regular examination. Then the fourth thing, the early church was devoted to prayerfully seeking. Prayerfully seeking, just praying to God. Seeking out God. It said they devoted themselves to prayer. Devoted to prayer. As believers, prayer is about both individually, our own individual lives, but also together. It's being in a desperate pursuit of knowing and following God. We, we spent those four weeks on prayer, and you're probably going to get tired of hearing about prayer this year. But, but folks, listen, if we don't pray, if that doesn't become an important part of our life and the life of our church, we'll never see God do anything. Prayer is part of what God does because we've prayed to Him, we've cried out to Him, and He answers that. J. Edwin Orr, a Baptist missionary in the 1930s and 40s, made this statement. He said, no great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Christians persistently praying for revival. Nothing happens without prayer. When you read through the New Testament, you read through the book of Acts, and you see the amazing things that were done, why were they done? Because those people prayed. They prayed earnestly. In fact, in, in one passage it says, they prayed so hard that the place where they were in shook. Tell you, if we prayed so hard in this place that the building began to shake, it would probably freak us out. And I don't know if the building shook literally or if they were shaking because the Holy Spirit was so powerful and present in their life. In 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere, a businessman burdened by the spiritual conditions of his day, he knelt in a back room of a small church in New York City. And he had a broken heart and he he had a simple request, Lord, this was his prayer, what will you have me to do? God, what do you want me to do? And that day, he said, God birthed in his heart to begin a businessman's prayer meeting. And he said, I was going to do it one day a week at noon for one hour so guys could come from work, come over here, and we would meet in my office and we would pray for one hour. So he put out an invitation that simply read, come when you can. Leave when you must. Wasn't organized, just come together and they just started praying. On September 23rd of 1857, he launched the very first prayer meeting. And he found himself all alone. No one showed up at noon. But about 12.30, six men showed up and they prayed. The following week, 20 men showed up. The next week, 40 showed up. By January of 1858, just three months later, they were meeting every day of the week. Um, they were on three different floors of that same building because they were taking up so much room. 
By March, 6,000 gathered daily in New York City to pray. 6,000 were gathering in Pittsburgh. 2,000 were gathering in Chicago and 4,000 in Philadelphia. By May of 1858, it is estimated 50,000 people in New York City had trusted Christ for salvation. In fact, a New England newspaper reported that entire towns, entire small towns had come to Christ, meaning there was no adult left to be saved. Everybody in those areas had been saved. It was estimated that for a period of months, 50,000 people a week were accepting Christ across America. By early 1859, 18 months after the very first prayer meeting, over 1 million people had accepted Christ in the United States. Now, at that time, the population of the United States was only about 30 million. Not long before his death, the thoughts of the late 19th century evangelist Dwight L. Moody turned his thoughts and his mind to remember the religious revivals of his youth. And he said, I would like before I go to see the whole church of God quickened as it was in 1857. Every great awakening, every great revival only begins when we pray. Prayer is the catalyst that makes those things happen. Because we can't force anything. We're, we're going to have revival services in the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. We're, we're going to have revival. But can I tell you, we can't make revival. We can't manufacture it. God brings revival. All we can do is prepare the, the soil, prepare the ground to make it fertile. And we do that through prayer. Listen, our vision means nothing. We'll, we, we, we can have the greatest vision in the world. We can have the greatest facilities in the world. We can have everything in the world. But it doesn't mean anything if it's not bathed in prayer and God is working in that area. And so we have to pray. And, and I tell you, when I read stories of this, I think, boy, we need that kind of movement in our churches today. We need that kind of movement in America today. And we say, well, you know, God just doesn't move that way anymore. You know why God doesn't move that way anymore? Because we don't pray that way anymore. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. He doesn't change the way He works. And so if He's not moving today, it's not because He's chosen not to. It's because we've chosen not to ask Him. And, and can I say a simple little two-minute prayer, God bless our church, is not going to bring the power of God into anything. It's when we lay our hearts bare and we say, God, we cannot do this without you. And more importantly, God, we don't want to do this without you. We want to see you do something. And if we want to accomplish the vision that God has given us in our own life, and we want to accomplish the vision that God want, has given us in our church, it begins and ends with walking in the Spirit of God and making sure He is a part of our life. Ch early church revealed that truth to us. 
that if we're to be a church that abides in Christ and lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and we want to participate in what God is doing, because can I tell you, God is moving. There are places all around this world where God is doing an amazing work, where people are coming to know Christ. There's, there's places where God is sending revival. Even in America. But every one of those places where that's happening, it's because people have devoted themselves to prayer and praying and praying and praying. And if we want that, we have to devote ourselves to that. We have to say prayer is the most important thing. We also have to follow the scriptures. We also have to share in encouraging one another. We also have to be examining our own self and making sure there's nothing holding us back. Nothing keeping us from doing what God wants to do. When I was talking about the church in Houston, when they started praying, he, he said they set up a prayer time on Tuesday nights and said, we're just coming to pray, nothing else. Just coming to gather and pray. He said he was disappointed less than 8% of his congregation showed up. And so he went to church the next Sunday morning and, and kind of just shared his heart and said, folks, we need to pray. And so that next Tuesday night, more people showed up and there were groups all over praying and different people praying together, some praying by themselves. But he said the power of God began to work. And he said what shocked me was in that one prayer meeting alone, 10 couples, 10, get this, in, in the church, coming to church all the time, came to a prayer meeting, 10 couples came to him and said one or the other spouse had been involved in an adulterous relationship. And they were confessing that sin. Listen, when we begin praying, God begins working, and He reveals stuff to us. And let me tell you, if we're living in sin, God can't bless us. And so we have to examine ourselves, and when we begin to pray, God begins to reveal. And sometimes I think that's why we don't want to pray, because we don't want God to reveal. But we need that. So can I encourage you? Whatever God is encouraging you to do in your life, put it into practice. If God has, has given you a, a burden or a desire to do a specific ministry, just step out in faith and do it. Don't wait for anybody else. Just if you come to me and say, hey, Pastor, God lays on my heart. I think we need this ministry at the church. If God laid it on your heart, that means God's saying you do it. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage you, we'll support you, we'll do whatever we need to do to help you get it off the ground. But that was God burdening you for that. It's not my burden. But it's your burden, and so you want to do it. So many times we, God gives us a burden, and we come to the church and say, well, I think, man, I really feel God wants us to do this. What you're saying is God wants you to do this, but he gave me the burden. God gave you that vision. And so you take that vision. And you run with it, and we'll be right behind you supporting you. Now, there may become times that, as a church, that, you know, the leaders in the church, we see somebody and say, man, they would be good in this position. They would be good doing this ministry. And we may come to you and say, you know what? We really feel like you would be good in this ministry. Why don't you pray about it? Because God is leading us to encourage you. That's where we're encouraging one another. We're helping one another. And so it all works together, folks, but I, I just encourage you, whatever God's laying on your heart, whatever God wants you to do, be involved, do it. 
because he's given you that vision. Fear is believing the enemy and his ways are better than God's ways. When we're afraid to do what God's called us to do, what we're believing is that Satan, the enemy of God, his ways are better than God's ways. When, when we are afraid to step out and do that. But when we step out in faith, what we're saying is, God, we're believing your ways are better than the enemy's ways. Are you attacking your vision with fear? Or are you attacking it with faith? Listen, God wants us to live by faith. And he wants us to increase our vision, but he wants us to put that vision into work and put it into practice. So I encourage you this morning, as a church, as individuals, let's get behind and let's do what God has called us to do. And let's see what God will do. Because I, I believe if, if we see God doing amazing things, it'll be the greatest ride of our life. It will be. But it's are we willing to do that? Are we willing to take that step and say, God, man, whatever you want, God, we're there. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I know you've given us a vision. Each of us that are believers, you have given us something that you want us to accomplish with our life. Lord, that vision changes over the years because as we age and as we get older, there's things maybe we can't do anymore that we used to do. And so you change our vision, God, but that shouldn't mean we stop doing anything. Lord, we have to catch that new vision. We have to grab hold of that new vision that you have for us. And where do you want us to plug in? What do you want us to do now? Ministries change in our life and things change in our life. But God, there's still areas you want to use us by encouraging people, by sharing with people things that we've dealt with, things that we're experiencing, things that you've worked in our heart that maybe we can share with someone else. Lord, each of those things are unique to us, and so you've given us that uniqueness to be able to share with other people. And as a church, God, we're in a unique position to share the message of Jesus Christ with those around us, God. And we are, we are praying that you allow us to do that. We are praying, God, that you would use Macon Baptist Church to be a lighthouse in this community. It all begins with us following you. So God, we help, ask you to help us to do that. And begins with prayer, God. Everything in the Christian life begins and ends with prayer. We can do so many other things. We can, we can read the scriptures. We can talk to other people. But if we don't bathe it in prayer, Father... we're missing out on the strength that you can provide and so God I pray as a church we would become a church of prayer like Jesus even made that statement that your house is to be a house of prayer that we are to be focused on praying God may we make that determination today that I 
I'm going to surrender, God, and I'm going to become an individual of prayer. And God, I want our church to be an ind- a church of prayer. Because we realize, God, you cannot work in my life and you will not work in the life of this church without prayer. God, as we look forward to Easter and as we look forward to the events, God, we want to invite, we want to encourage people to come, but God, if we don't pray, if we don't pray for your presence and pray for your power, Lord, it means nothing. It's just events. So God, may we as a church over the next couple of weeks, we come to this altar, may we pray, God, do something amazing in our church. And Lord, may it start with me. God, we surrender to you today. In Jesus' name we pray.